Hello there, and welcome to episode number 103 of Blue Jays World Update. I'm your host, Thomas Hall, and let's get you up to date. Alright, so sadly, the 2022 season has come to a very disappointing end for your Toronto Blue Jays, who were swept 2-0 by the Seattle Mariners in the wildcard round, and find themselves now searching for answers ahead of what'll almost certainly be another pivotal offseason for the Blue Jays, but one that is likely to likely to be far more complicated than the last few ones. So let's set the scene here because the Blue Jays now Lost game one to the Mariners, 4-0. They were shut out. And then you have game two, which started out extremely well for the Blue Jays. Where, you know, Robbie Ray in the first inning looked like he was going to absolutely deal against the Blue Jays. Where he struck out uh, two of the three batters. He struck out. Springer and Bichette and got Vladdy to ground out. Um, So early on, it seemed like they were going to have trouble figuring out how to hit against Robbie Ray. And then they start getting on his slider, especially Teoscar Hernandez, who had a two home run game performance against the Mariners. And sadly, that's now going to be largely forgotten because of what happened later on in the game where the Blue Jays were able to come out to an 8-1 lead after the fifth inning and as a result that gave them a 99% uh, win probability after that heading into the top of the sixth they had a 99% win probability and it looked like they were sitting pretty They were going to punch their ticket to game three, being able to, uh, you know, come down to a winner-take-all game between Ross Stripling and Logan Gilbert. And then the sixth inning happened, which, you know, Kevin Gosman almost worked himself out of. He gave up three straight singles to begin the inning, but only one was hit hard. Like, Ty France's 106.7 mile per hour single was by far the hardest hit ball of the inning because Eugenio Suarez followed that up with a bloop single at 71.5 miles per hour. Cal Raleigh with a 74.8 mile per hour single. Like, just unlucky um, hits off Kevin Gosman, which was basically the story of his all year long, where... Uh, he just struggled to uh, uh, not give up soft hit or softly hit hits. Um, but even with the bases loaded and nobody out, he struck out Mitch Haniger. He got Adam Frazier to pop out or pop up into a uh, infield fly. So you got two outs with Carlos Santana coming to the plate, who's a switch hitter. So. 
You know, matchup-wise, John Schneider thought, let's turn Santana around to hit right, we'll bring in Tim Meza, and hopefully get out of this jam. And, like, historically, that makes sense, because over his career, Carlos Santana has been a better power hitter from the left side of the plate compared to the right side of the plate. So I see where Schneider was coming from. This season, however, Santana has been a better hitter from the right side of the plate versus the left. And, you know, even though his isolated power was slightly higher as a lefty this season, his slugging percentage and weighted runs created plus were both drastically higher as a righty versus a lefty. Like his, he had a 134 weighted runs created plus score and a 402 slugging as a right-handed batter this season versus a 366 slugging and an 89 weighted runs created plus score as a left-handed batter. So based on those splits, it may have made a little bit more sense from a matchup standpoint to leave Kevin Gosman in the game, even though he was at 95 pitches um, and, and about to face uh, a really good uh, um, slugger. And we know how that story went. It didn't end well for Tim Meza or the Blue Jays, where Carlos Santana, I mean, you, you kind of have to tip your cap to him because he went down... Uh, almost below his knees away from him as a righty to smack out you know a, a 91 mile per hour sinker from Timeza and he sends it just over uh, the wall in left center for a home run that came off the bat at 101.3 like it, it's just sometimes you have to tip your cap to an impressive uh, at bat even though you don't want to, right? Um, you know, because that sinker was low and away from Carlos Santana. And he was out on his front foot and early on it too. And for him to still be able to crush that ball over 100 miles an hour for a home run, like that's just impressive. It truly is, you know? Like, and there there was a lot of that that went on in, in game two um, for the Blue Jays, or against the Blue Jays. Um especially in that eighth inning against Jordan Romano and Anthony Bass. Like, just very unfortunate situations and impressive ABs from the Mariners. Like, you have to give them credit. Again, even though we don't want to, because in the end, they defeated the Blue Jays at the Rogers Center. That's going to sting. Um, but you have to give them credit for um, putting up quality at-bats and, you know, creating good batted ball events off you know, well-located pitches. So that grand slam really hurt the Blue Jays. Um, you know, trim their lead to eight to five in the sixth inning. Now, thankfully, the Blue Jays were able to come up in the seventh inning and add to their lead by one um, and, and make it nine to five heading into the eighth inning. With Tim Meza still on the mound after he uh, struck out Ty Fran or sorry, um, 
he got Dylan Moore to strike out to end the sixth inning. So he comes back out for the seventh, and he strikes out J.P. Crawford, who's a left-handed batter. So that matchup favored uh, Tim Meza. And then you bring in Jimmy Garcia to face Julio Rodriguez and Ty France, and he recorded both of those out, striking, uh, striking out J-Rod and getting Ty France to fly out. And then you have the eighth inning, where the Blue Jays are up 9-5. And you, you, uh, you have Anthony Bass coming in to face Eugenio Suarez. And the Blue Jays were in a shift. They were shifting more towards uh, you know, right center versus left field. So Tapia, who came in of relief of Whit Merrifield, who was hit by a pitch in the head, had to come out for precautionary reasons. Luckily, he's okay. But that put Tapia in left field, who, you know, isn't the greatest defender out there, obviously. And... You know, like as much as you want to drag him through the mud for not catching that double that landed, that really even shouldn't have been a hit because it came off the bat at 79.1 miles per hour, producing a .04 expected average. Like that should be a routine flyout in a regular defensive positioned outfield. But, you know, like it's just, it's baseball, right? Like that that sort of silliness happens in a baseball game where, you know, that fly ball that produced a 4% hit probability, Tapia had to cover 100 feet, uh, 101 feet to catch that ball. But unfortunately, because he was shifted more towards the gap, he only covered 96 feet. And, uh, and even with the dive, couldn't make that play. And, you know... Whether or not you have Jackie Bradley Jr. in left field, even though Jackie himself doesn't have that much experience in left field, do you have him in there? Um, does he make that play? Or do you have Jackie uh, you know, in center field and, and Springer in right and say Oscar in left? Or, you know, if Gurriel's able to play, does he make that catch? It's all hard to say. In the end, though, that play sort of changed the entire outcome of that eighth inning because then you have Cal Raleigh, who had a massive home run in game one, comes up in the eighth inning with Suarez at second base. And credit to him, he took a fastball that was located up and away from him and he sent it into the outfield for a single, scoring Suarez, which again, Impressive as hell because that single off the bat for Raleigh only came off at 89 miles per hour. Like he didn't crush it, but he didn't have to either. And then you have Mitch Hanniger coming up after Raleigh and he takes a slider low and away from him, sends it back up the middle at 94.6 miles per hour. Like again, impressive AB after impressive AB. And then to make matters worse, you have Adam Frazier, who comes up with Jordan Romano on the mound now because Anthony Bass came in and couldn't record a single out. 
Not entirely all his fault, but again, it would have been nice if he was able to record a strikeout when he really needed one. He didn't, unfortunately, so Schneider had to ask Romano to try and get a six-out save, which is never easy to do, especially in the playoffs. And then, with Adam Frazier at the plate, he takes a fastball that's located basically at his shoulders and sends a 96-mile-per-hour heater into left field to load the bases. Again, not ideal. But what does Jordan Romano do? In typical fashion, he strikes out Santana and more to get two outs. But then, you know, J.P. Crawford comes up and, well, we kind of all know what happened next. Where he took a slider that, you know, wasn't perfectly located by Romano. It was down the middle of the plate. But it still shocked the hell out of J.P. Crawford because he only hit it. 70.4 miles per hour off the bat but he blooped it perfectly into no man's land in between uh, Bo Bichette, Espinal and uh, and Springer. Nobody was able to get there in the end. um, You know looking back at it Springer had a pretty good read on it and it seems like if Bo isn't in his way who ultimately collides with him there's a chance Springer catches that ball but also too even if it drops one maybe two runs are scoring certainly not all three like there's no way that's a base clearing double for JP Crawford to tie the game but that's just part of who Bo Bichette is right he's an he's an aggressive player by nature so not to mention Roger Center was just absolutely blaring, right? Like, even if Springer is calling for the ball in center field, there is no way Bo Bichette's hearing him until it's too late. I think at least. I don't think there's any chance Bichette was going to hear Springer's call in that type of an environment, especially with the dome closed. So... That's again, that's a really tough situation. It's unfortunate because Springer had to leave the game on a cart and get evaluated for a concussion. So I'm sure Ross Atkins will provide some more information about Springer's status in his end of season presser on Tuesday. But, you know, still, that's that's one of the plays that when you look back on. It ended up, you know, proving to be one of the moments where the Blue Jays, you know, lost the game. Um, Because then, you know, like crazy enough, Romano struck out all three batters for outs, right? All three outs that he recorded were on strikeouts. He struck out Santana, Moore, and then he he struck out Ty France after Crawford's double. So, you know, like if only two runs score on that play, the Blue Jays still lead by one going into the eighth. And, you know, even if the ninth inning plays out the same way it does, where the Mariners end up scoring a run on uh, on the, uh, the, the double from, from Adam Frazier, the game's tied and possibly going into extra innings. And who knows how that plays out. But you, in the end, like, you can't just blame this on, on one thing or another, right? Like... 
would have been would it have been nice if Schneider left Gosman in to face Santana in the sixth inning and then maybe Santana doesn't go deep perhaps you know like if it was me I'm probably looking at the you know Santana's 2022 splits versus his career ones and saying yeah I don't really want him facing a lefty so you know if I don't feel confident in uh, Gosman getting out of that I maybe go to Anthony Bass in that spot or Jimmy Garcia or you know if, if you really want to uh, save those guys for the later innings which you can't necessarily do in the playoffs but still if you wanted to take that approach maybe you go to like a Trevor Richards and match up that change up against Carlos Santana who has a tendency of chasing outside the zone so you know I, I in the end I just don't I don't think it was the right move in retrospect to go to Mesa from Gosman um you know while I was watching the game I thought in my head yeah that makes sense you know Santana's got more power as a lefty versus than a righty but that wasn't necessarily the case during the regular season this year. And I didn't think to look that up in the moment. And maybe the Blue Jays coaching staff didn't either. They were maybe looking at more career splits versus, you know, 2022 ones. I don't know. But in the end, it didn't work out to the Blue Jays' favor. Um, and that's probably a decision John Schneider is going to, you know, uh, play back in his mind over and over throughout the offseason because it is going to be a long one for the Blue Jays so you know between that and you know the shift that they were in in the eighth inning that led to the double for Suarez and then you know the the snowball effect that happened afterwards with Bass giving up three uh, two straight singles afterwards and then pulling him for Romano and that loads the bases ultimately and then you know the incident with with Bichette and Springer in, in center field on Crawford's double you know like there's just there's three or four instances in that game where the Blue Jays kind of beat themselves in a way you know their their unpredictability proved to be their downfall which you know looking back on this season that kind of makes a lot of sense considering how unpredictable they were throughout 162 games it just it pains you even more when you realize the fact that the Jays were up 8-1 halfway through the game and that that they weren't able to hold on to that lead throughout the rest of the game and again you have to credit the Mariners for their approaches at the plate um, because it, it's not like they didn't have any impact in that sense they certainly did but, you know, when it comes down to it, the Blue Jays ultimately kind of threw this game away between, you know, the, the bullpen decisions and, and the unfortunate shifting there in the eighth inning and, you know, the, uh, the miscue that happened in no man's land with Springer and Bichette there and the miscommunication they had there. Um, you know, it sucks. It's, it, it also, you know, it doesn't help that they fell into an early hole in game one with Manoa giving up three runs in the first inning where, you know, he couldn't locate his fastball to save his life. 
Um, the velocity was good there. It was up 95, 96. But um, whether it was the nerves of playing in his first ever playoff game and that kind of atmosphere at home, or he was just too amped up himself, uh, whatever the case may be, he just didn't have control. And, you know, the, you combine that fact with Castillo, who was just dominant. Like, his velocity was insane. You know, it was up across the board. He was averaging like 99 with his fastball all game. It had ridiculous horizontal movement throughout the entire contest. Like, I understand why the Blue Jays really couldn't create all that much against him but at the same time too their approaches weren't all that great either they chased a lot out of the zone against Castillo and helped him out more than they needed to do and you know then you have to go up against that bullpen which is just insane as well um you go up against Andres Munoz in both games um which was not an easy test by any means and we ultimately come to this outcome where the Blue Jays are in a similar spot to where they were in 2020, where they got eliminated after two games of the playoffs. And, you know, obviously it's different circumstances between two years ago and now where the Blue Jays are a better team, a better equipped team than they were back then, especially from a pitching standpoint. But in the end, they come to the same result where they lose after two games in the first round. Um, and as we look ahead to the offseason here, it's going to be a little tricky for the Blue Jays from a financial standpoint because, you know, even with the new CBA raising the luxury tax thresholds, the core of this team is starting to get more expensive. And that's why. Again, it, it it really hurts the team, the fact that they weren't able to win around or go deep in the playoffs with this young core at, you know, a fairly inexpensive price tag as they are right now. Um, as we move forward here into 2023 and 2024 and beyond, it's going to get more expensive and, and you're going to see those, you know, complementary pieces, guys around the edges start having to get moved because they price themselves out. And it's possible we get into a situation like that this offseason. Because as things currently stand right now, according to COTS baseball contracts, under their um, estimates and, and, and um, calculations, the Blue Jays player payroll for 2023 is just a little over $123 million. Now, when you combine that with the remaining salary that they're still paying Randall Gritchick, which is scheduled to be a little over $4.3 million for next season, you also have to figure into the new uh, zero to three bonus pool that was part of the new CBA. So that's uh, a little over $1.6 million. You have the minor league players that are on the 40-man roster that you have to account for. for so that's, you know, like $2.25 million. Then you have estimated player benefits. So that's by baseball or COTS baseball contracts. That's up to like $16.5 million. So when you factor in 
all of those figures, the CBT um, payroll for the Blue Jays for 2023 is projected to be around $148 million with the first uh, luxury tax threshold at $232 million. So just between that, that gives them a little bit, of, a little bit over $83.5 million in tax space. Obviously, like Mike Sh Mark Shapiro has said in the past, the Blue Jays aren't going to have, um, you know, like a top three payroll in baseball. They're not going to uh, approach or exceed the luxury tax anytime soon, which is fair. You, you can especially understand that after being eliminated in the first round. That's a... Uh, that's a fair assumption to make is that they're not going to, uh, you know, spend crazy north of $200 million and, and pay a luxury tax as well for the first time ever. Like, that's just not going to happen. That's that's not how Rogers Communications operates, you know. So um, we can't expect the Blue Jays to drastically improve their payroll from last season, which, you know, they're... CBT payroll came in at $190 million last season. So, you know, that was, uh, that was a high point, you know, um, but without question, their payroll for next season is going to be north of $100 million or $90 million, or at least it seems that way, bearing, you know, drastic changes, the Blue Jays payroll is more than likely going to increase next season. That's, you know, and, and, and that's going to be evident just in pre-arbitration and arbitration uh, hearings where you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. entering arbitration for the second time in a row. Bo Bichette is first time arbitration eligible. Teoscar Hernandez is in the final or is going to be entering the final year of arbitration for himself. So, you know, like the young core of this team is starting to get more and more expensive and is nearing free agency, right? We have Teoscar Hernandez who will be eligible to enter free agency after 2023. Same thing goes for Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who is making or is scheduled to make a very team-friendly $5.8 million next season. And we also received um, Major League Baseball trade rumors arbitration salary projections, which comes out every year. And for the Blue Jays, they're projected to have 13 players in total um, eligible for arbitration this offseason, including Hernandez, Tapia, Simmer, Richard, Zimmer, Jansen, Vladdy, Meza, Biggio, Thornton, Bichette, Romano, and Espinal. And in total, if all 13 players are retained and tendered, they could total $62 million on top of what the Blue Jays are, have already on their books, which is $123 million in player salaries. That's a lot of money. Now, obviously, you're not going to bring back everyone, right? There are going to be ways where the Blue Jays can save some money. You could, 
non-tender Bradley Zimmer. That would save you $1.3 million. You could non-tender Trent Thornton, which would save you $1.1 million. There's also an argument that you could make about non-tendering Rymel Tapia, which would save you $5.2 million. So altogether, between those three players, if you non-tendered all of them, that would save you a considerable, a considerable amount. It, it, you know, it would save you $7.6 million. Like that's pretty significant, you know? So, you know, considering the lack of outfield depth in the Blue Jays organization, you know, would it be ideal to non-tender somebody like Tapia one year after uh, trading for him? Probably not. But, you know, at the same time as well, Tappy is not that far away from free agency too, right? Like, Tappy is, like Hernandez, is entering the final year of arbitration. So, you know, is it going to be worth, you know, whether it's $3 million or whether it's $5.2 million or a little bit lower than that, either way, are you going to try and re-sign Tapia after next season? Probably not, right? Like, I, you know, like, I don't see Tapia being on this team beyond 2023, especially if the Blue Jays go out and target, say, a Brandon Nimmo in free agency, who is probably going to receive a very lucrative contract this offseason I think if the Blue Jays were to go after him and and sign him to a long-term deal that would probably mean trading one of if not both Hernandez and Gurriel maybe not both at the same time but you know I think if you add Nimmo's contract on the books along with George Springer like that kind of limits your ability to you know offer a fair deal to either Hernandez or Gurriel. Gurriel is probably going to be the cheaper one between him and Hernandez. But at the same time too, I think if Nimmo is signed, that probably punches Teoscar's ticket outward, out of the team this offseason just because he's projected to earn you know, $14.1 million through his final year of arbitration this winter. Like that's a hefty... Um, you know, pill to swallow for the Blue Jays if you, you know, make a long-term commitment to Brandon Nimmo, you know, but, you know, there's, there's also the argument of, well, you could make that a lower figure if you sign Teoscar to a, you know, a long-term deal. And same thing with Vladdy, who is protected to earn $14.8 million through arbitration this winter, which would essentially double his salary from 2022, which was seven. Point nine million dollars. So, you know, and, and then you have Bichette starting arbitration as well for the first time. Um, he's going to get more and more expensive at the year, after, as the years go on, right? He's going from 
uh, you know, 723,000 in 2022 to 6.1 million dollars in 2023 projected at least. So that's that's a big jump um, from year to year for for um, you know a, a team that uh, as seeing their payroll tick upwards year after year, right? Like in 2020. The Blue Jays had uh, a CBT payroll of a little over $133.4 million. That went up to $166 million in 2021. And then this year, obviously, they were up to $190.2 million. So the last few years, despite, you know, uh, going through a pandemic... The Blue Jays have seen their payroll uh, increase significantly year after year, and I don't think I don't think we'll we'll see as big of a jump this year. You know, I, I don't I don't see it jumping by thirty million dollars again. But at the same time, too, I think if you're not able to trade reuse contract, which you probably aren't, unless you're including you know a quality young prospect with him, because that's 20 million dollars that some team would have to eat uh, if the Blue Jays don't retain any of that money for 2023. Then you have Kikuchi's contract, which is at 10 million dollars for 2023 and 10 million dollars for 2024. If you're not able to move any of those salaries, then you know that's 30 million dollars right there just for 2023. That's significant um, if you're able to move that. If you can't, that's you know, somewhat like dead money, right? Because Ryu is probably not going to pitch at all in 2023. If he does, it'll be very late in the season. He won't be able to give you many innings. And Kikuchi, you have no idea what you're going to get out of him. He looked good down the stretch using his fastball and slider. But, you know, can you rely on him to compete for that fifth spot in your rotation next spring? Probably not. Like, you can't really leave that last remaining spot down to Kikuchi and Mitch White. Like, that's just asking for disaster. So you probably have to bring in, if you're the Blue Jays, at least two starting pitchers this offseason because beyond the major leagues, you don't have much depth in the minors either, right? Like, you can't expect Ricky Tiedemann to be able to come up and make make his major league debut at some point, you know, early on next season. Like, that's just, that's too much to ask of him. Um, And, you know, like the Thomas Hatches... And the Casey Lawrences and whatever Anthony Kay is going to be after he was injured for much of this past season. And, you know, anyone else you can think of at that AAA level, like there isn't much depth there. So whether or not the Blue Jays can address that this offseason, we'll see. But, you know, you also have to combine the fact that without any additions, the Blue Jays payroll is likely to figure somewhere around 190 million dollars. That's without any additions. So, you know, one that limits your ability to re-sign somebody like Ross Stripling, who is probably going to command somewhere around 15 million dollars per season in free agency, I would think. Um, so you're you're going to be hard pressed to re-sign him or bring in somebody at that price tag who can give you similar results as your number four starter. Um, 
so you know I think trades are are more likely going to be how the Blue Jays address this sort of financial uh, crunch that they have going on here where you know possibly you see Danny Jansen getting moved who you know is projected to earn 3.7 million dollars through arbitration this season uh, obviously you have to continue addressing the bullpen probably add you know another arm or two especially add more swing and miss to that group because that's something that they really missed in the playoffs um, so I would think that probably means the end of David Phelps in Toronto just because you know he's, he's towards the end of his career and he can't really give much swing and miss to begin with so he's probably moving on and I would say probably the same thing with with Jackie Bradley Jr. Although, with that being said, if you were to non-tender Ramil Tapia, that may entice you to try and work out, you know, a uh, fairly inexpensive one-year deal with Jackie Bradley Jr. to come back and maybe serve as your fourth outfielder or fifth or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, because defensively, Jackie can still uh, give you production whether that's in center field or in right field. And, you know, even though there's a lot of flexibility on this roster with, you know, Whit Merrifield being able to play in the outfield, same thing for Cabin Biggio. We saw Espinal out there in some four-man outfield shifts as well. So who knows if his versatility could potentially find him playing in the outfield uh, on occasion in the future. So, and, you know, you have versatile players in the upper levels of the minors as well um addison barger i believe uh that's how you pronounce his name encouraging young prospect in the in the blue jay system i wouldn't be shocked one if he's added to the 40-man roster this offseason two he ends up making his major league debut at some point next season so if you have a tapia on the roster still that might block his path a little bit um so i i'd have to really dig into the numbers deep and look at what's out there in free agency and whether or not it would make sense to non-tender Tapia, saving you probably $5 million or so. But um, there are going to have to be some cuts made just to free up some money to provide the Blue Jays with a little bit more flexibility. Um, but again, there are, there are some key areas that this team needs to address mainly the starting rotation obviously and and figuring out what's going to happen with Ross Stripling and what type of offer you can make him and then beyond that like are you going to try and make Kikuchi available try and dump his contract a little bit um would you dare try and do the same thing with Ryu I don't know if you'd have any takers there like it would probably be more of a hassle to try and dump Ryu's contract just because of the you know the package of prospects you would have to attach him with to get rid of that um, 20 million dollar dead salary but also the Blue Jays are probably going to get a bit of that back through insurance I don't know by how much but in the end it's still going to count against their um, CBT payroll so it doesn't it really help them a whole lot but from a real money standpoint it will um, and and then you have the catcher position like do you make a move there I, I think you probably do um, 
I, I really like having Danny Jansen as your backup catcher, but you know, how much is that going to cost you? And, you know, would you really want to part ways with an Alejandro Kirk or Gabby Moreno? Like, would you, would you dare have Gabby Moreno and Alejandro Kirk on the team next year? Um, it's risky, right? Cause they're both young catchers still. I really like having a veteran presence. Um, behind the plate even if it's in a backup role so and obviously too you would fetch more by trading either Kirk or Moreno but given the relationships that Kirk has formed this past year with Alec Manoa and Jose Barrios I might be more inclined to keep Kirk and trade a Gabby Moreno if it came to that I know he's got a higher ceiling than Kirk but I just wouldn't want to mess with that chemistry that Kirk has formed, especially with Manoa. Um, you know, sometimes you just, you don't want to tempt fate. And I wouldn't want to do anything to piss off Alec Manoa or affect Jose Barrios even further, you know? So um, that'll be interesting to see how that play, the, how that situation plays out. And then what do the Blue Jays do from an offensive standpoint? How do you add more balance to that lineup? Uh, especially with, you know, if you were to say add a Brandon Nimmo, that would immediately add, you know, no, no, not more offense from, or not more power from the left-hand side of the plate, but that would give you somebody who you could insert in between, say, Springer and Bichette or Springer um, or, or have Nimmo lead off and Springer hit second, you know, like it would just make them, it would make the Blue Jays lineup even more deeper than it already is. Not to mention that would allow Springer to shift to right field on a more regular basis, which one, he's better analytically from in that position. And two, it would likely take um, less of a toll on his body physically. And as he gets older, that's something you have to monitor, especially with how injury plagued his last two seasons have been. So, you know, I, I know Nimmo is going to earn a lot and the Mets are going to try and do their best to keep him, obviously, which is only going to raise his asking price. But if the Blue Jays are somehow able to land Nimmo, that'd be a game changer in my mind, especially from a defensive standpoint and an offensive standpoint. Um, but it'll also be interesting to see what they do from a pitching standpoint as well. But uh, in the end, however, whatever way this winter shakes up to be, how, whatever happens, whatever moves happen, I don't think it's going to be uneventful. You know, it, it, it could be, just from a financial standpoint and how tight things have have become but this team needs to improve and to do that you have to get flexible you have to create um more space on the payroll um and they ultimately are gonna have to spend more like i i would not be shocked if we see the blue jays opening day payroll for their cbt payroll touch or exceed $200 million for the first time. Now that would still put them way below the luxury tax, but they were around $200 million this past season at 190. So it wouldn't shock me if we saw them exceed $200 million 
next season. So we'll see how things play out. But that does it for this week's episode. I hope all of you will join me next time for another edition of Blue Jays World Update. But until that time, I'm your, home, I'm your host, Thomas Hall. And before I let you go, probably going to take a bit of a hiatus here, probably for a couple of weeks just to let things die down. Um, and, you know, there isn't going to be too much Blue Jays news. I wouldn't expect for a little bit here. If there is, obviously, I'll record an up another episode. But in the meantime, it'll probably be a few weeks until you hear from me again. But hopefully you tune in whenever the next episode drops. But uh, until that time, please get vaccinated, wear a mask and wear it properly. Thanks for listening.